I look forward to the day when just like people pay their lawyer or their electrician or their plumber that they realize that the rabbinate is a profession, that it's a serious profession, and it's something that needs to be remunerated just as much as any other profession. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The position of rabbi is perhaps the most important and central role in Jewish communal life, and no one gets as much grief from the people around him either. The rabbi is honored and respected unless he's completely disrespected and disliked. There are good reasons that when I was growing up, my dad didn't want me to get smicha lest I be tempted to be a community rabbi and have to deal with all that that entails. Beyond the problems with congregants, being a rabbi involves other challenges too. The rabbi has to perform many functions and fill many roles for which he may or may not be prepared. There's a good chance that he's wildly underpaid. His wife is often expected to work for the shul for free. Frankly, the halachic training that's necessary to become a rabbi may end up being the easy part of the job. It's everything that comes along with it that can make the position of rabbi exceptionally daunting and demanding. In contrast to the negative picture I just painted, Rabbi David Fine loves being a rabbi and can't imagine doing anything else. He co-founded an organization, Barkai, which is training rabbis in Israel in the areas of practical rabbinics that they likely never learned in yeshiva. And while he doesn't shy away from acknowledging the challenges that rabbis and rabbinic couples face, he has a very optimistic view of what the life of a rabbi can be. I spoke to him about all of these issues and more, and we'll get to that interview in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi David Fine is the co-founder of the Barkai Center for Practical Rabbinics and Community Development. He has served in pulpits in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Overland Park, Kansas, and made Aliyah to Modi'in in 2008. Before founding Barkai, Rabbi Fine served as the Jewish Identity Coordinator at the Modi'in Community Center and the Director of Rabbinic Outreach at the Eretz Chemda Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies in Jerusalem. Rabbi David Fine, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. My pleasure to be with you, Scott. So when I was a kid, my dad used to worry that one day I would want to get smicha. And the reason that he was worried 
was because if I had smicha, there's a chance I would become the rabbi of a community or a shul. And that would be an absolute nightmare in his opinion because everyone would hate me. Let's start off with a big question. Was my dad right or wrong about the profession of being a rabbi? Uh, I think he was wrong. I, I do admit that, you know, you have people that don't like you and you have uh, people who are even enemies. And I think it was Rabbi Charles Salanter said, uh, if, you're ra- if everyone loves you, then you're not a rabbi. So uh, you have to have some people who dislike you in order to really be a rabbi. But I think in general, he was wrong because I think being a rabbi is the uh, best job in the world for a Jewish boy. I once heard my father say many, many years ago before I decided to become a rabbi that all of our you know, stars, all of our intellectuals are going into law school and to medical school and no one's going to rabbinical school. We need some of them in rabbinical school as well. Well, let's talk about some of the reasons that my dad, right or wrong, was worried. What are some of those challenges on the negative side that rabbis do face that make the job difficult? Well, I think the number one is thing is that what you just mentioned. Sometimes you have to make decisions that not everyone is pleased with. Um, and sometimes, you know, a lot of things that because of confidentiality, you're not allowed to say, um, and some people don't even realize why, what are all the, uh, aspects of making these decisions and, you know, different strokes for different folks. I I would come down to Kiddush, some, some Shabbatot when I was a rabbi in America and somebody would come over to me and say, rabbi, that was the greatest drush I've ever heard you give. And then, you know, five minutes later in the same kid, somebody would come over very, very critical of my drasha. So, you know, you're always being judged. You're always being looked at your kids, your wife, how you parent, how 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 you are as a couple. Everything is really uh, like living under a microscope. So you have to get used to that. And uh, it could take some getting used to. In that case, what's the positive side of it? Doesn't sound so great. Well, the positive side of being a rabbi is is enormous. I mean, I think that you have an opportunity to make a, a large imprint on a community. But was what was most important to me is that one was able to really have a major effect on people's lives and really for the better. And when when you're there at the at the critical moments, whether it's a simcha getting married or whether it's a, unfortunately a death, when you're there in the critical moments and you are a mensch and you do what needs to be done and you say what needs to be said, you can really make a, a really large imprint in people's lives. And I was a rabbi in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and in Kansas City. I wasn't in Teaneck or, or you know, Boca Raton or, or Los Angeles. I, I had a lot of people who, you know, and I always say in Kansas City, uh, a large part of the people that came to my synagogue drove there on Shabbat. So um, being in critical moments like that enabled me to have an effect on them for the better and for and and for them coming back to Jewish life uh, in a more positive way. That's nice. I once read a book, I'm sure you've heard of it, by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman called Tales Out of Shul, talking yes. about his experiences as a shul rabbi in Atlanta, yes. of course. And frankly, after reading that book, that was probably the most I ever wanted to be a shul rabbi because uh-huh. it really was inspiring. But what was funny was I remember, I probably won't quote it correctly, but he went down there expecting to get all these shilas, these questions about these deep halachic topics. And the first question he was ever given was something like, what's the Hebrew name for like, you know, Bruno or something, something that <laughs> was not what he had been, been anticipating. Right. And a lot of what he did were some things that they simply don't train you for in regular rabbinic school. Have you found that as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, in my first job, I did everything. I was the only employee of the synagogue. So in my first job, I did everything from changing the light bulbs and the toilet paper to the major things that rabbis do. So uh, I don't think any of my training uh, helped me do the the former things I said. 
Uh, but you do have to do a lot of things that you don't necessarily receive uh, training for in rabbinical school. And even the things that you do receive training in rabbinical school for until you're in the line of fire, until you're actually there doing it, all the training in the world doesn't necessarily help you once you're in the line of fire. So can you explain that? What do you mean? Um, I mean, you could have a lot of training on how to give a, a hesped, a eulogy at a funeral, right? But when you're there the first time and the first time you're talking to a family, and the first time you're giving that eulogy, uh, you know, you're very emotional and you don't really know what to say. And so you did get a lot of training, but until you're really doing it itself is the best training that there is, I think. And that's why in our program, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon in Barkai, uh, we only we at the beginning, we started taking rabbis who did not have jobs. Right. They were rabbis, but they didn't have jobs in synagogues. And then uh, later on, we realized that if you weren't in the job, the training wasn't it was much more. It was much too theoretical so that being in the position is really the best training. So, David, you've had, a, I'm not going to call it unique, but an unusual opportunity to be both a rabbi in the United States as well as to come to Israel and to train rabbis here. So are there specific instances where being a rabbi in Israel is fundamentally different and comes with its own challenges that are unlike those challenges you experienced in the United States? Uh, yes, there are many, many differences. And uh, I'd say that uh, the two big differences are that the whole notion of community, which revolves around the synagogue and revolves around rabbinic leadership that has been prevalent in the diaspora for so many thousands of years, uh, that for a lot of different reasons doesn't really exist in, in Israel. Israel, the synagogue is really just a place to daven and maybe an occasional class or two. But the whole idea of the shul as the center of the community and the rabbi as the leader of that community uh, doesn't really exist here. And the second major difference is, is that in America, it doesn't matter whether you go to ultra-Orthodox or ultra-Reform, if you're going to actually go out and speak to a human being, you know, no one who is in charge will let you do that without some training other than halakha and, and gemara and whatever textual training you get. Here in Israel, there is absolutely no requirement whatsoever to have any practical training other than the Mivkanei Rabbanu. Those are the two differences, the critical differences that I would say. Okay, given those two challenges that are different in Israel, specifically the lack of community and the lack of training in areas beyond halacha, how is that manifest specifically in problems that rabbis face? And the second one I can understand, they're probably not trained to do a lot of things, but how about the first idea of community? How is that, so to speak, a problem that they have to deal with? Well, uh, they don't really, since they don't really grow up in the community, they don't really realize the rabbi's place in the community. They don't really realize mm -hmm. his role. I, I remember a colleague of mine in Israel, um, when he first became a, a, a shul rabbi, right? Somebody's a somebody in the synagogue, their parent passed away. Um, so he thought that at that moment, you know, the, the family, the nuclear, the close nuclear family was a very sensitive moment and they wanted to be together by themselves. So he didn't go right away, you know, to the family's home. When somebody passed away in, in America, right, in my shul, like, I was one of the first people there. So just that story gives you a little bit of an insight into the, sure. the, the Rabbanim in Israel are great Tamidei Chachamim and they're, and they're wonderful people and, and, and have the have the 
potential to become great leaders, but since they didn't really grow up under the system, they don't necessarily recognize where their place in that system is. I say that's the best example. I understand. That's a good point. I want to speak about the flip side of that same example about that lack of training, but the lack of training that I think can sometimes lead to rabbis not realizing they don't have that training, meaning it's one thing to not be trained in, let's say, pastoral counseling. It's another thing to not be trained in pastoral counseling, but to think that you know everything because everyone treats you like this oracle. And then I have heard of situations in both the United States and in Israel where rabbis are giving suggestions to people psychologically, which they are not trained to do, and they can cause serious damage. This is the other side. This is not people not doing enough. This is rabbis doing far more than they were trained to do and not realizing that this particular task is way outside their wheelhouse. Right. And that's why it's a big problem. I, I agree with you. And that's why in our program... We spend a lot of time, uh, a serious amount of time, making sure that the rabbis understand the difference uh, between having a small amount of training in psychology or social work or whatever it may, in mental health, whatever it may be, and being able to perhaps recognize that there's a problem and perhaps be able to refer. But uh, there's a major difference between that and thinking that you are a therapist or you are a psychologist or you are a social worker. And we spend a lot of time making sure that people don't get into areas which they shouldn't be and which they're not trained for. So yes, you can make very, very major mistakes if you cross that line. And that's why it's very important. And we stress that to the rabbis all the time. We're not training you to be therapists. We're training you for three things, really. We're training you to be able to recognize problems, to be able to properly refer. And then after the person is in counseling or in therapy, to be able to be the company, because you see them if they're going to synagogue, you perhaps see them much more than the therapist. So you have to know how you can be there in the ways that are appropriate for you to be there. Okay, so you've mentioned your organization, Barkai, and some of the ways they're trying to fix some of these problems. So tell me a little bit about how Barkai started and what you do in order to make rabbis' lives, I'm not sure easier is the right term, but make them more equipped to handle the challenges that they face. Right. So the way Barkai got started is uh, it's part of it is very personal. I, like I said, I was a rabbi for ten, a pulpit rabbi in the United States for 10 years. Uh, my wife really wanted to make Aliyah and I, I, I would be, have been fine making Aliyah, but I had no idea what I would do here because my job doesn't really exist here. Like I said, the whole idea of a community and even if there are communities, even the Anglo communities, one Israeli, you know, born rabbis, because the rabbis guide in terms of where to go to the army and where to go to yeshiva and where to go to Sherut Lumi. And, you know, the so so I was not not necessarily really equipped to be a pulpit rabbi uh, in Israel. So I had no clue what I was going to do. And I had to re-engineer my entire career. And it's a very long story. But to make a long story short, the rabbi of my shul, Rav Shlomo Sobol, who is a uh, 12th generation uh, Jerusalemite, uh, he had grown up in Katamon and didn't really ever understand what a community was. He himself says that he was in Detroit for four years as a shaliach, as the Rosh Kolel, the Tarmitzion Kolel, and it was in America that he discovered what a Jewish community was. So when he saw the way it worked and the way that rabbis were equipped to, to deal with some of the things that they had to deal with, he thought that when he got back to Israel, he would start a similar thing. So I think that he became the rabbi of, a, of our large Anglo community in Modin, and that kept him busy for a few years. But when I spoke to him once and I said, I have no idea what I want to do, he suggested this idea that we start a program that provides the rabbis two things, an understanding of what a community is 
how to lead a community, how to understand the proper your proper position in the community, and a lot of the skills that are necessary for being a, a, a successful and a good rabbi. So we developed a curriculum based on those two um, principles. And we com- came up with a, uh, we traveled the country in Israel for close to 16 months before we started any program. We met with rabbis and doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and coaches and you name them, we met with them. We also had uh, over 20 years of experience between the two of us in the practical rabbinate. So we certainly understood uh, to a certain extent what rabbis needed. I'm, I'm I from the American perspective and he from the Israeli perspective. We came up with the curriculum and uh, we offered it to the public of rabbis. And the rabbis here are very, very thirsty for this. Uh, they understand that that running a community is a very complicated thing. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it's it, it's a very positive thing. There's room for a lot of growth and, and assistance that you could give to people, but it's also a complicated thing. And you have to be able to navigate those waters. And in order to do that, you just like a dentist can't be a dentist without training and a lawyer can't be a lawyer without training, we think that a rabbi can't be a rabbi without training. And part of, yes, obviously the basis is Torah and halakha and all that. There are many years of learning, but you also have to have this practical knowledge in order so that you can bring out that Torah learning in the best way possible. Well, David, let me ask you, it sounds interesting that people are thirsty for this only because they didn't know before this what they didn't have. And the way you describe the rabbinic training that rabbis get in Israel, I'm curious why they realize it's a problem, meaning they grew up in systems where rabbis didn't have that training. Why would they think it's necessary for them? They don't have any sort of template which they're trying to fit into that would require that. Right. Well, I think that, like I said at the beginning, this is a long, this requires a long explanation. But the bottom line is, is that I think over the last like 20 years or so, and certainly today, um, Israelis uh, across the religious spectrum realize that a community, the idea of a community is needed much more than it was uh, previously. So synagogues have begun to hire rabbis that had never considered doing so before. And so they would hire a rabbi and a rabbi would come in and you know, he like I always say, the example I always give is that he thought that his job was, you know, to teach the highest level Gemara Shir, but he didn't necessarily realize that his job was also to go visit the, the guy in the hospital. You know, so the job is both. And the rabbis that that have started and haven't necessarily at the beginning succeeded because they didn't necessarily realize their their place. I think that trickles down to, you know, the rabbis who are still in Smicha and the young rabbis that are coming out of Smicha. And I think uh, there's a there's been a lot written about this in in the mm-hmm. in the press and and in journals about the and not even in secular Israeli society the need for community the state can't provide everything that's really the bottom line. Okay, that's interesting. When you mentioned the state, obviously one of the things that Israeli rabbis deal with, which is not true in other countries, is the centralized rabbinate of the Rabbinot Rashid, Israel's right. chief rabbinate. Now. Without getting into anything about them, that could be a different podcast. I don't want to talk about that now. But in terms of dealing with the rabbinate, right. is it a difficult thing for rabbis to have to balance the needs of their community with the requirements of the rabbinate? I don't know if that's something which the rabbinate cares about, but I would wonder if the rabbinate would almost dictate at certain points things they're allowed and not allowed to do. Does that happen? Well, it really depends on the location and the city or the yeshuv. I mean, it really varies. But in general, I would say that the chief rabbinate uh, both in the country and the chief rabbis of cities or, or yeshuvim, um, they're really, and this is part of the reason why we started Barkai, because their role is really, a, I would call a clerical role, 
right? They um, register marriages and they're in charge of their, you know, the basic authority for the Eruv or for Kashrut. And, and I just take Modin, where I live as an example. There are around 100,000 people in Modin. Right now, there are two chief rabbis in Modin. So two chief rabbis can't possibly have relationships with, uh, with 100,000 people, right? And they're so busy doing all, the, and, and then they also have to represent the city and make speeches. And every time, you know, a store is dedicated and they put up their mezuzah, they're there. These are all very good and, and, and necessary things, but they don't necessarily have the time to, you know, counsel people and to be those kinds of pastoral pastoral rabbis. So that's where the what we call the Rabbanut Kihila, the community rabbinate, uh, steps in and uh, to, to take a, a neighborhood or a synagogue and, and become their rabbi uh, like they do, like it is done in America. Now I'll tell you, because that's true, the rab, the community rabbis here, the Rabbanet Kihilot, the pulpit rabbis, they don't really have any of the experiences that they may be a much bigger Tamakakam than some rabbi in Kansas City, um, but in Kansas City, I was the, the head of the Eruv. I was the head of Hebra Kedisha. Uh, if there were uh, divorces, Gitin, that needed to be done, I was responsible for putting that all together. So it's almost like rabbis in America, um, in some cases, have more experience than the rabbis here do because they don't have to do that. So once that's all left to the chief rabbinate, the, the jobs seem like they're very different jobs. And at least where I live, there are very good relationships between the chief rabbinate of the city and the individual community rabbis. There's almost no interference. Actually, not almost. There's really no interference whatsoever from the chief rabbinate in the local uh, synagogues. The election of the rabbi especially is totally independent of anything because these rabbis are all being paid by the communities, not, not the government, not the chief mm-hmm. rabbinate. So, you know, I but see. again, I would just say, I would just end by saying that you know, again, what I said at the beginning is true. It, each place is is really different. It's hard to it's hard to uh, generalize, but I would say in my in my experience, and we have almost ninety rabbis that have completed our two year training program. Almost never has there ever been a problem like that. So well, the chief rabbi it gets a, a a lot of bad rap, and uh, you know there are issues that need to be discussed in that area. Like you said, we could do that in another time, but. In most cases, they let the individual community rabbis uh, operate on their own. Okay, well, it's good to hear that good news. You mentioned some of them. Could you actually give, it doesn't have to be a listing, but basically tell me, what are the skills that you train rabbis that they need beyond the regular Gemara, Halacha, Postgame, and so on and so right. forth? Well, we start our course with a, a, um, a unit on community and community leadership. And we look at, in the writings of both Jewish uh, scholars as, as well as contemporaries, we look at non-Jewish scholars and, and, and contemporary uh, writers about what a community is, how you define it, and how different theories about leadership and, and, and where, where you stand in terms of that totem pole. And it could be different models of leadership that, that are necessary for different places. And then practically, the rabbis at the beginning write a vision statement of what, what they want their communities to look like in a year, five years, and 10 years. And, and, and really, that's where we start. Um, after that, um, we start with something which I would call technical. We do um, public speaking. And then we do all kinds of courses uh, in mental health, psychology skills, like you said. But I would just say that, and I could give you more of a list afterwards, but I, I, I like to say one of our teachers, we actually um, teach chaplaincy skills about how to visit people and, and to be with people at the end of their lives. And um, 
the person, the chaplain, who, who a very experienced chaplain who taught this course at the beginning, we do what's called active listening. People think that you just listen and uh, and it's easy to listen, but actually they're active listening. Listening is a great art and a great, uh, it's a great skill. And this chaplain, when we were doing this, this active listening said, it, listening is not 10% and it's not 90%. It's a hundred percent of the job. That's what he says. So um, if you're, if you're able to really be there for somebody in their moment and really understand how to pay attention and how to listen, especially in today's age where there are so many distractions, um, you think it's easy, but it, it really isn't. And that's probably uh, the biggest skill that we teach. And it's interesting. We do a coach we do a course in coaching. We do a course in mental health and we do so many courses where as part of that course, there's a unit on active listening. So they get it from a lot of different directions. And we hope that when they're when they're done, like at least that they know how to do that. OK, I have a few more questions about some sure. of the specifics. I first want to talk about rabbis' wives. One of the problems I've seen and heard from rabbis is that their wives are very often expected to be almost co-rabbi, right. to have part of the job. And this person, first of all, on the one hand, they may not be trained at all. You know, we want the Rebbitson to give courses, and maybe maybe she can't. Perhaps an equal problem is the fact that even if she's completely trained, she may be better trained than her husband. Right. She's not being paid for it. That's a real problem. Right. So first of all, just to make one thing clear, rabbis in Israel— uh, shul rabbis are not necessarily paid either for their jobs. And that's why every one of our rabbis, you know, maybe they make a little bit of money from their synagogues, but they all have, all 83 of these rabbis have second jobs where they um, are able to earn an income. So here- Wait, hold on a second. Rabbis in Israel don't necessarily make money? So again, um, the, the, our rabbis are hired by their communities. And uh, the, the rabbis that work for the chief rabbinate and whether in cities or locally or in the national rabbinate, they are paid by the state. But if a community decides to take on a rabbi, uh, then it's up to the community uh, whether to pay them. And the culture has become in the national religious community, in the Zatilumi community, that this is basically just a voluntary job. And it doesn't deserve to be paid for. Now, this is because I believe, my theory is, is that people in Israel are have always been used to getting religious services for free, right? If you want to get I'm married, sure. you don't have to pay the rabbi. And if you want to be bar mitzvah, you don't have to give it. And if you want to sell your chametz, whatever it may be. So um, therefore, somehow this culture uh, started that the rabbis don't really get paid. And if they do get paid, they get paid, you know, 2,000, 3,000 shekel a month which, as you know, is not nearly enough to uh, support. And usually they have very large families, six, seven, eight kids. So it's very, very difficult uh, to support a family on that kind of living. So they all, so most of our rabbis actually are in education. They're rabbis in high schools or in yeshivot. But some of our, uh, one of our rabbis is a lawyer. One is in high tech. So they do high tech, you know, during the day. And in the mornings and the evenings and on Shabbat Tot, they're the rabbi of their shul. So that's something that's, that's very difficult for uh, Americans who are not really, or people who live outside of Israel who, are, who don't really understand how the rabbinate works here to get their arms around. But the, the problem- It's hard for me to get my arms around. I've lived here for 26 years. <laughs> right. You're an Anglo, right? So many Anglos live in a community like I do uh, that, that understands the need to pay a rabbi. Meaning I, what I usually say is, let's take a step back, back for a minute. 95, probably more, probably more than 95% of, of synagogues in Israel don't have rabbis, right? Because the synagogue doesn't appreciate 
the need for having one. They don't believe that they don't understand the the value added by having a rabbi. They think that a rabbi is going to make the services longer. It's going to tell them what to do. And, and, you know, um, most Israelis in the Dati Lumi community figure, you know, in every shul, there's probably somebody who learned enough at yeshiva or hasmicha that if we ever have a halakhic problem, we could go to them. But not many, many, most shuls in Israel don't have rabbis in the first place. Okay. So um, when the rabbi comes and then they expect to be paid, uh, that becomes uh, a different issue in and of itself. But to your question, um, the Rabbaniot, the Rebetzins, in our organization, we always have a, um, a discussion about what the Rabbaniot like to be called, right? Some like to be called Rabbaniot, some are Rebetzins, some say absolutely not. So we call them the wives of the rabbi. In Hebrew, it's Ishto Shel, you know, Eshet Harav. But you're certainly correct, and that's true in America as well, meaning, um, my wife happens to be a psychologist, but she didn't sign up for this necessarily. But uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that at the end of the day, um, shuls, whether it's fair or not, are looking for a team. And um, I, I'd say that you can be a successful rabbi if your wife is not necessarily interested in in being, you know, a rabbitson. But it's a lot, lot, lot easier uh, if she is. And and I I was like out of town, as they call it. In my out-of-town uh, synagogue, I don't, I don't think it, it would be very easy for a, ra- a rabbi to be as successful as he could be without a support of uh, rabbinit. David, I have no choice but to go back to this not being paid thing. Okay. <laughs> Despite the fact that I hear what you're talking about in terms of the rabbinit and the rabbinit, right. yes. Okay. Right. Put that aside. Right. I almost see a bit of a contradiction here. If a rabbi is not being paid or is being paid a pittance, something right. which is not even close to enough to live on, and then you're giving him, admittedly, Barkai is doing wonderful work. Right. But you're now giving him more work, meaning aside from going to Barkai and taking his classes over a couple of years, now he'll know he has to do pastoral counseling. He has to make a better drusha. He has to spend more time on his classes because now he knows actually how to teach a class, right. et cetera. How does that work together? It sounds almost like it's a stira, a contradiction. No, I, 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 would, I understand your question. And yes, it is a stira in many ways. But I would say that my basic answer to that question is these rabbis are really um, – uh, they display tremendous Mesirut Nefesh, right? We have rabbis in Ramla and Lod and Dimona and all, I mean, we also have rabbis in Herzliya and Jerusalem, and, but um, they really display a lot of Mesirut Nefesh. And they, even though they're not necessarily being paid or being paid a pittance, as you said, they, they want to do more. They, they realize that in their position, um, they're starting to realize that they could have a lot of influence over people and bring a lot of Torah uh, to the Jewish people. So I think they they actually want to do more work. But um, w- we've been successful in getting a lot of rabbis paid uh, that haven't been paid and in raising the salaries where rabbis are being paid to, to, to get them higher. And I look forward to the day when just like people pay their lawyer or their electrician or their plumber that they realize that the rabbinate is a profession, that it's a serious profession, and it's something that needs to be remunerated just as much as any other profession. Absolutely. That reminds me of another idea which I wanted to ask you about, about burnout, because since it is a very serious profession, and especially if it's a profession that doesn't get paid at the highest wage scale, the question is, 
how rabbis are able to make it past a couple of years in the job. A friend of mine once said, my experience in the rabbinate is not, as I mentioned, in communities or synagogues, but rather in education. And someone, a good friend of mine said that you'll notice that when rabbis start off in chinuch, in education, they usually want three things. Your young, up-and-coming, 20-something rabbi. He wants to have a flourishing family life. He wants to make a decent salary. And he wants to have a tremendous hashpa influence on his students. And by the time he reaches the age of 40, he realizes he's going to get maximum two and probably only one of those three things. You can't have all of them, which is why you see teachers dropping out in their 40s. It happened ah. to me. You see this over and over. So my first question is, is that also something that happens in the rabbinate, something similar? Or if it doesn't, why not? Um, you know, amongst my colleagues and and our rabbis in the program, I, I the rabbis in the program, most of them are very, are, are you know, just starting out. Uh, I really don't see it as being a problem. Uh, first of all, I think there's a lot more awareness of this problem that wasn't there in the past. And actually, as part of our program, we address that burnout and, and how to handle it. But I think that there's so much, so much good that you get for yourself from doing this job that it really is fuel, right? When you know that you're there, you know, for someone in, in all kinds of different problems that could come up. And you know that, okay, you're not always the help. And sometimes you may make mistakes, like we said at the beginning, um, everyone makes mistakes. But um, that, that really provides so much fuel for being able to go and go and go. And I like to say that, you know, uh, the rabbi is a profession. So if you're a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, you also work very, very, very hard. You know, I mean, my father was a lawyer when he was at a law firm, you know, he worked around the clock, right? But I think, that the things that we do are so meaningful and so um, important that that really provides a lot of the fuel. So are there, is there a bit of burnout? Yes. I mean, you know, here and there, but in, in my circles, I don't really see it. And I think that what you're working on to raise the salaries, again, I'm not trying to harp on that issue, but I think that's actually probably a big part of making sure that it happens less because it's great that you want to do wonderful things, but if you're working around the clock and getting paid several thousand shekels a month, obviously your family might need more than that. And you're not harping on a, on a, on a small point. It's a very, very big point, and it's a very, very important point. And when I applied for my first job in America, um, they told me that at this point, and during the interview, they told me that at this moment, this was only being offered as a part-time job, right? Uh, it was, it's just a long story, but it was basically a group of people that started diving together in someone's house on Shabbat. And then they decided to make it into a shul. And I, I was their first time rabbi and they, their first full-time rabbi because of the following. They said that it was only a part-time position, but then they listed all the things that they wanted the rabbi to be able to accomplish. So I said, at the interview, I said, and I got, I got the job. I said, at the interview, you can't have a part-time rabbi and have him do all of these things. And, and our rabbis, t- our, our rabbis today, right? Um, if they're, you know, teaching at a school or they're uh, a lawyer or whatever they are, and, you know, Uncle Shmuel passes away in the middle of the day, their congregants expect them to be there. Right. Even though they're they're committed to another job. So right. I, we always say there's no such thing as a part time rabbi. There's only such thing as part time pay. Mm, that's a really good point. I want to ask you another question, David. Yes. I've heard the following suggestion, and I want your take on this, that in the 21st century, for too many Jews, both in and out of the Orthodox community, the synagogue, the shul, is an antiquated institution. And although we still need binyanim, no one's trying to say change the right. halacha. That's not what I'm talking about. But as an institution... Many young Jews just don't find real meaning in their shuls. And we need to create new organizations, new institutions, new structures to answer this need. Right. So obviously the way you're working primarily is to make the shul a better place, the community better. 
Do you think that the emphasis should be on schools or is this suggestion correct? We need to create new institutions. I think that, you know, yesh for yesh. Uh, I, I think that I, I think that the synagogue is not antiquated at all. Um, some of the practices in many uh, synagogues are antiquated and they need to be updated and relevant for for modern life. So if a synagogue is still stuck in, you know, the last century, then you, you need to you need to do something about that. But I think we need to meet Jews wherever they are. And yes, yeah, so new organizations do do need to be uh, founded and, and many successful organizations that are not synagogues have been created in all movements in order to be able to meet Jews where they are. So I don't think it's a contradiction. I think you need both, but I don't think at all that synagogues are antiquated. Um, I think that they could be very relevant. I think that they could be very powerful in people's lives and very meaningful. And um, I just think that one has to, you know, the rabbi together with the, the lay uh, leaders have to, oh, just like you expect your doctor to always read the modern the journals and all the articles about whatever they do right you so you you would have the same expectation of your rabbi and, your, and the lay leaders of your synagogue there's a lot going on in synagogues today in synagogue life about how to make them more relevant how to make them more meaningful and even how to do things you know technically technologically better so i think that synagogues are are here to stay and um i think that's the right thing okay david if you were to speak as a final question to a person considering going into the rabbinate today and who's worried about some of the issues we talked about, the low pay, about not having the proper training, about having people hate him, about all the problems that can come up. And yet at the same time, you obviously think that people should become rabbis. That is quite clear. What would you tell him? If someone comes to you and says, what would you advise me? Why should I be a rabbi? I would tell them that I couldn't imagine why they want to be anything else. I'd say, or if you're going to be successful in any job, you're going to have uh, obstacles. You're going to have struggles. And uh, so these struggles are of a different kind than in other jobs. But again, because the it gives you the opportunity to do two things. I think that there's, there's very few jobs that give you that opportunity. Number one is that you get to um, teach Torah and make Torah relevant to people in their modern day lives. And, um, and really do that in a very, very meaningful way. And the second thing is to be there for people when they need you, uh, again, whether it's in the good times or bad. I think those two things are, are just very, very, very satisfying. And um, I don't find myself slowing down at all. Uh, on the, on the you know, opposite, I, I, I find myself just wanting to do more and more. And I think that, um, I think that many of the rabbis, uh, both in Israel and in America or anywhere around the world, that, you know, have been trained and understand what their role is and what their responsibilities are. You know, most of my friends, I, I hear are the same thing. Okay, well, Rabbi David Fine, I have to tell you, your enthusiasm is contagious, and I really appreciate Thank you so that. Much. You make it sound really, really exciting, and I don't think I'm going to change my career again, but <laughs> at the same time, if anyone could do it, it probably would be you. And Mazel Tov on the birth of your new grandson five weeks Thank ago. Thank you very much. Next time we could get, a, I'll take your side, I'll get on the mic, and I'll, I'll, I'll interview you about why you don't want to be a public There we go. Okay, sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, Rabbi David Fine, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.